Hey there, welcome to another episode of ENT in a Nutshell. My name is Jason Barnes, and today we're joined by Dr. Devin McCaslin, a PhD in audiology who specializes in dizziness and is the director of a large tertiary vestibular center. And we'll be discussing benign paroxysmal positional vertigo, otherwise known as BPPV. We're also joined by Dr. Matt Carlson, neurotologist, who will be here to tie in clinical pearls into the otology and neurotology world. Dr. McCaslin, Dr. Carlson, thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Thank you for having us. Dr. McCaslin, when you see a patient with BPPV in your office, what are some of the presenting symptoms and what are some questions that you ask to kind of tease out what might be BPPV? Yeah, sure. These patients, when they come in, primarily complain of when they bend over, look up, any sort of head position will provoke the dizziness that they're complaining of. Um, most often, these patients will uh, note that they become very, very dizzy when they wake up in the morning. Uh, that's usually the, the first time that you know, they'll, they'll encounter this. Uh, then as they go through the day, as they bend over, look up, roll over, what they'll do is they'll get this very brief vertigo, anywhere from 10 to 20 seconds. Uh, that, is, that is when you know, queried is, is a true vertigo. And it can be associated by a little bit of nausea. Uh, if they don't move their head, if they don't move at all, they don't provoke the vertigo. Uh, so uh, this can continue and continue. Uh, will often sometimes spontaneous resolve, but then also may continue for weeks or months. And are there any risk factors that you ask about that could maybe tip you off that this is more BPPV than something else? Yeah, no, that, that's a great question. The uh, majority of these of, of cases of BPP are actually idiopathic. Uh, just uh, occasionally they wake up and they've got it. But things we really have to, you know, sort of query is... Uh, were they in a motor vehicle accident? A lot of times that is uh, one of the uh, common results of, of getting BPPV. Um, any sort of effect of a vestibular pathology, oftentimes we'll see a patient with a neuritis. Uh, we'll see a patient with a labyrinthitis. In fact, when you look at thousands of patients, 25% uh, of people with a neuritis or a labyrinthitis will, uh, will often incur BPPV. It's also very common in Meniere's disease. Uh, other issues like ischemic processes, autoimmune, all need to be considered. But it's pretty clear uh, you can differentiate from the case history pretty quickly whether or not this is BPPV. I'd like to add one thing from a clinical side, from an otologic side. It's not super common, but it definitely occurs that you'll have a patient that comes back postoperatively, whether it was a cochlear implant or a stapedotomy or another procedure, uh, and they'll be doing well for a while, and then several weeks later they'll report uh, vertigo. And then when you ask them more specifics, it'll become uh, readily apparent to you that it's more characteristic of BPV. You'll do a dix pike and they'll have a positive finding, as we'll talk about in a little bit. So uh, as Dr. McCaslin alluded to, uh, trauma or even iatrogenic, just from surgery, even if the surgery went perfectly well, sometimes people report this. And naturally, right after surgery, you think it was a complication of surgery. They're still dizzy because you're doing something with their ear. But some cases are BPV. So I'd always encourage uh, people to look for BPV in the postoperative setting, particularly if the symptoms are really consistent with that and not a prolonged, uh, unabated uh, dizziness. And Dr. McCaslin, is there anything from an epidemiologic standpoint gender, age, that kind of thing that you see more commonly in patients with BPPV? Yeah, well, approximately 6 million people present to the U.S. healthcare system with dizziness, and 20% of those are going to be diagnosed with BPPV. That makes it the most common form of vertigo that we're going to see, uh, regardless if you're a frontline provider or even a subspecialist. 
Uh, BPPV is about seven times higher in those older than 60 years uh, when you compare them to their 18 to 39-year-old counterparts. This has to do uh, with uh, some of the issues with aging and the otoconial aging. Uh, it's been found in 9% of the elderly population, and it's more common in women, almost from a 2 to 1 to 3 to 1 ratio. And Dr. Carlson, when you see these patients in clinic, and we'll talk about the diagnostic maneuvers uh, in the workup section, but what are you looking for on physical exam to tease out the etiology of their vertigo? Absolutely. So when you see a person in clinic and you suspect that they might have BPV, particularly if they're giving the characteristic history of them rolling out of bed and getting dizziness or tilting their head back and feeling a vertigo for a short period of time, which is uh, really uh, quite diagnostic for the condition, um, you really want to rule out other potential causes for it. Um, and we'll get into the differential diagnosis later, but really the physical examination in this setting is to exclude other pathologies. So you, they should have a normal otologic examination on otoscopy or otomicroscopy. And at rest, uh, without any provocative maneuver, they shouldn't have any spontaneous uh, symptomatic vertigo or nystagmus on your examination. And so uh, your full cranial nerve examination, your otologic examination, everything else should be completely normal aside from what we'll talk about in a minute being a positive Dix-Hallpike maneuver. And Dr. McCaslin, as we move into the pathophysiology behind BPPV, I wanted to first talk about anatomy. The semicircular canals, I feel, at face value are somewhat understandable, but there are a lot of details uh, to them, and some of those might help us understand this uh, pathophysiology. So could you briefly tell us about the anatomy of the semicircular canals in the vestibule? Yeah, sure. The, uh, and it's interesting because BPPV is an interplay between both the otolith organs and the semicircular canals. So the semicircular canals, of course, are housed in the bony labyrinth. Um, they're at right angles to each other. At one end, each semicircular canal is dilated, and that's where the osseous ampulla is, and that's about twice the diameter of the canal. Each of these canals is orthogonally oriented to each other, and doesn't, the lateral canal doesn't sit horizontal, but rather 30 degrees off the horizontal plane. Uh, each ampulla contains an ampulla crest, the crista ampullaris, which consists of a thick gelatinous cap called a cupula, many hair cells, uh, makes that system up. So when the head changes position, or when you move your head, this what happens is the endolymph in the canal's legs behind and impinges on the cupula and bends the hair cells, which activates and stimulates the nerve. The stimulation of the hair cells sends the electrical code to the brain that an acceleration is happening. Uh, the utricle, that's an otolith organ, along with the saccule, rests in the vestibule. That has hair cells that aid in appreciating latitudinal acceleration uh, and uses the otolith as a mass, these calcium carbonate crystals that, that, um, that, that sit on the otolithic membrane. So with that in mind, can you tell us about the pathophysiology of BPPV? What's going on that uh, causes this vertigo? Yeah, so as I said in the beginning, what happens is patients will typically awake in the morning or when they get up, go to the, use the restroom uh, with BPPV. And this is because the, the, the idea is that the otoliths from the utricle are primarily what contributes to BPPV. And when they're laying supine, what happens, the otolith is oriented now vertically and the otoliths are hanging on, on the otolithic membrane. And when they detach, they have a direct shot right into the posterior semicircular canal, okay? Uh, they don't usually realize that while they're sleeping, but when they sit up, up they go, the, how the otoliths move, moves the endolymph inside the posterior semicircular canal and triggers the vestibulocular reflex, which then is their perception of vertigo. 
And you mentioned the posterior canal in this context. Is BPPV only caused by uh, otoliths in the posterior canal, or what's the breakdown there? Yeah, no, the posterior canal is the most common in every study that you'll read, uh, canal that's affected by BPPV. And again, it's because of that orientation with the utricle and the, and, and the posterior semicircular canal when the patient is laying it's supine. The horizontal canal comes next. That's the second most common, and the, by far the rarest is anterior canal superior uh, BPPV. Dr. Carlson, anything to add about pathophysiology? We always talk about the semicircular canals as detecting angular acceleration, um, but if you're moving at a constant speed, you no longer detect it anymore. So it has to, just like we think back to physics, it's the accelerating portion that's detected and, and uh, caught in the deflection. And secondly, a directional, the detection of uh, the utricle and the saccule and how they detect acceleration. So uh, just to remember that the uh, saccule detects uh, vertical acceleration and the utricle detects horizontal acceleration. That's the only thing I might add to that. And one question we like to ask Dr. McCaslin is about the natural history of a disease. So what happens if someone has BPPV and this just goes untreated? We don't do anything about it. Oftentimes you'll see it resolve on its own. Uh, but in other cases, it won't. And so what we will see is, is, is uh, patients will com continually complain uh, regarding the positional vertigo. Uh, what will happen is it can even become more severe. As more otoliconia become dislodged, uh, they're very sticky. And so what the happens is the mass will become bigger and bigger, uh, and this, it can become more severe over time. Uh, what you'll often see patients do is make accommodations where they will sleep in a recliner, they won't bend over. I mean, they will completely revise their lifestyle uh, based on the idea that this head position causes them to be dizzy. Dr. Carlson, when we think about differential diagnosis, what else is on your list and what are you looking for in clinic? That's a really critical question because you want to, most importantly, distinguish it from more sinister things, things you don't want to miss. Um, but just to talk about this broadly, when a person comes in with dizziness, whether it be BPPV or something else, I think the first questions you have to ask are what are the other concurrent symptoms they're experiencing? So by teasing out of whether or not they have a fluctuating hearing loss or fullness of the ear or concomitant tinnitus really can help you hone that in. And so uh, concurrent symptoms and concurrent otologic symptoms and even rarely concurrent cranial neuropathy is something you want to look for and ask about. Uh, the second thing that I think is really critical to tease out and also very, very important is the, the duration of the symptom. And so characteristically, BPPV the vertiginous portion or where the, the, the portion where they feel the environment is turning around or moving relative to them should not last longer than a minute. And if you're very specific to ask about that, once it starts going over a minute, and particularly when it starts going over hours, you really have to change your differential diagnosis. And I think it's really critical that when you ask them about the symptom of dizziness or vertigo or imbalance or lightheadedness or whatever term you're using, that you really help, you really understand what they're, how they're defining that because we all use these terms differently. And so specifically, you'll want to ask them, is the environment moving around you? It doesn't have to be spinning, but it should be that the environment is moving relative to you. And you should differentiate that from inner or internal vertigo, where you feel you are moving in the environment. That's also separate from BPPV. So it should be the environment moving around you, and it should last for less than a minute. If a person has concomitant fluctuations in hearing, uh, tinnitus in their ear with aural fullness in particular, and if it's lasting for hours on end, you really have to start thinking about Meniere's disease. And we have a, a separate excellent podcast on Meniere's disease, and I'd encourage you to listen to it. 
but in general, um, with Meniere's disease, you do want to have documented sensorineural hearing loss episodes as well to help confirm that. Overlapping with Meniere's disease, as outlined in that other podcast, is the symptom of vestibular migraine. And vestibular migraine typically doesn't, isn't associated with hearing loss, but rarely you can in some circumstances have associated hearing loss and tinnitus and other symptoms. But also, um, like migraine in general and like Meniere's disease, the symptoms should last hours and, or sometimes even longer. Other conditions are more rare, so you could have a stroke condition, but to have an isolated positional vertigo from a stroke would be case reportable. It would not be a typical presentation. You can have a vestibular neuritis or a labyrinthitis, and remember uh, that the thing that distinguishes those two are the clinical finding of hearing loss with it. So a person who has labyrinthitis has to present with symptoms of vertigo and hearing loss, and that will typically last at least a day, but many times, many days, and sometimes as long as a week or more. And that's a, um, a labyrinthitis. A vestibular neuritis is distinguished from a labyrinthitis because you spare your hearing. It's only affecting the vestibular system, and specifically the vestibular nerves, and so they won't have any fluctuations in their hearing, or they won't, their hearing won't go down, but instead they'll have an isolated, longer-term dizziness uh, that will typically last hours, days, and sometimes even weeks. I also want to distinguish it from one other thing, just the general symptom of vestibular hypofunction. So when I was a resident, uh, seeing a lot of patients with vestibular schwannomas, they would come back and they'd say, I was dizzy when I turned my head quickly. And I'm like, oh, I'm a smart resident. That's BPV. That's not BPV. That's vestibular hypofunction. So uh, patients will, um, we can talk about this a little bit later too, but patients with unilateral vestibular hypofunction um, will often have a, a, a delay between when they turn their head and they move their eyes that mismatch is perceived as very temporary dizziness lasting seconds. And so that's another one that I think you wanted to, uh, to distinguish. Dr. McCaslin, do you have anything else to add to that? No, I think you got it right. So we've talked about presentation, pathophysiology, differential diagnosis, and I wanted to next move on to workup. And Dr. McCaslin, I want to talk about diagnostic maneuvers, but before then, Dr. Carlson, any role at face value for imaging, audiogram, or blood work? So I think it goes back to your differential diagnosis. BPPV is very common. And the history is extremely suggestive if you, really, if you really ask the history well. And we'll talk about it in a minute. But also the examination findings, the diagnostic examination finding is so telling that in that setting, with all those findings and with an, a, a good interview and a good examination, you can hone in on the diagnosis very effectively. And you can save people from a lot of additional unnecessary testing and extensive workup. So in that setting, a person that you really suspect has BPV Without a unilateral asymmetrical hearing loss, there's no role for MRI in that specific situation. Of course, if you have a person who has atypical findings, uh, there's always uh, exceptions to the rule. But in general, a person with uh, history strongly suggestive of BPV doesn't warrant an MRI or CT scan at the beginning. So, Dr. McCaslin, this is kind of the meat and potatoes of what we're here to talk about. Can you tell us the diagnostic maneuvers that you do in clinic to diagnose BPPV? Sure. Yeah. Well, the first of, of course, the... The one most well-known is, of course, the Dix-Hallpike, named after Margaret Dix and Charles Hallpike in 1952 when they first described this maneuver in 100 patients at Queen Square Hospital. Uh, and this, what this has to do is, is, is having the patient seated upright, turn the head 45 degrees towards the side that you're in, in, intending to test. 
Uh, this has the effect of aligning the posterior semicircular canal with the sagittal plane of the body. And what you do is the examiner brings the patient back, supporting their neck, and, and hyperextending their head about 20 or 30 degrees over the table. One is, that is key to ask is, does the person have any back problems before you start maneuvering them? Okay, you really need to clear that first. But then a secondly is also the head extension off the table of about 20 or 30 degrees is extremely important. And you need to make sure you don't, you know, you query them about so you don't have a VBI or something along those issues. But um, the extension is important in that some patients will, it will provoke the BPBV and others it will not. Okay, and so uh, if you don't extend the head, it's possible you'll miss it. When you've got them in this position, of course, what's going to happen is the cannulus, or what we call them the otolus, have gotten loose. We now give them a new name called cannulus because they are otolus in the canal. And what this is going to do is activate the VOR and generate a nystagmus uh, that, that uh, is associated with the posterior semicircular canal. Uh, you're going to have a latency in the beginning. Okay, so you're going to bring them back. You're not going to see it right away. But give it a few seconds because of the viscosity of the end of the lymph, and then what's going to happen is nystagmus is going to emerge. Uh, what you usually want to do before you bring the patient back and you really suspect they have BPPV is warn them about what's going to happen. You want to instruct them. You know, the one thing they don't want to do, they've been avoiding this since they've been coming in. And so, um, you know, you want to make sure that you understand that you're going to hold on to them and nothing's, you know, it's going to just be brief. When you look at the nystagmus, the character of the nystagmus is in, in, for the posterior semicircular canal, it's an upbeating, meaning the fast phase is going up and there's a torsional component rotating the eye, the upper pole of the eye, towards the dependent ear. So they're you know, upbeating to the right for the right ear, upbeating left for the left ear. Uh, after the nystagmus stops, and it will, uh, after about 30 seconds, depending on the size of the mass, what's going to happen is let them sit for a little bit, and then you're going to want to bring them back up. And what you need to do is, is prepare them that they're going to feel the vertigo when they sit back up. And, and if you've got goggles on or you're able to see their eyes, what you're going to do is you're going to see a reversal in the nystagmus, which again confirms the BPPV. So uh, the patient should then have the maneuver repeated on the same side. Again, this is a, a response that fatigues. And so the more you, again, the more you do it, you know, you're, it's going to become less and less intense. Um, so that's really, you know, how we identify doing it right and left for the, uh, for the, the posterior canal. We also evaluate the lateral canal or the, you know, and, and for that one, we use what's called the supine roll test. And here, what we do is we have the patient sit as they would be prepared for a caloric or in an exam chair, have them laying back, but head, uh, you know, supine with the head up 30 degrees. Uh, and what we do is we start with the head in the center and roll the head 90 degrees to one side. Okay. And so we let them sit. And again, the, this being the, the 30 degrees puts the horizontal or lateral canal in the plane of stimulation. Have the patients uh, be there for about 30, 40 seconds. Uh, if no nystagmus, you want to bring them back to center. Now, it's important to let them rest in the center for about 30 or 40 seconds, even up to a minute, in order to let everything equilibrate, because what's going to happen is then you're going to go to the other side, uh, same thing on the opposite side that you didn't test. You usually start with the side that, that you suspect, okay, and then center the head back up again. The key here of letting the patient rest in between turning the head to the right and to the left is that what you're going to do is the way that you're going to identify which lateral canal is impaired or affected is by the amplitude of the nystagmus. 
Okay, and so and if you don't let it rest on each side, you're going to skew the results. And so you really need to, to let the system settle down between head turns. The anterior canal, oftentimes you will see this um, in the in the in the in the Dix Hall Pike. Uh, you may see some downbeating nystagmus. We don't really have a good test. And what the test, if you do suspect anterior canal, what we do is what's called the deep supine head hanging, where we just actually bring the patient all the way back and drop their head uh, straight back, uh, hyperextended. And in and, and that way, we can actually look at and evaluate the anterior canal. Part of the reason I think we don't see a lot of anterior canal is because we actually don't test for it. And so, um, uh, you know, you start doing that and you start to see a lot more of it. One item that it's worth considering is that during the Dix Hall Pike, if a patient does have lateral semicircular canal BBBV, there will be evidence of horizontal nystagmus during the Dix Hall Pike. Uh, and you'll see it even more clearly when you do the supine roll test. Also, when you're suspecting anterior canal BBBV and then seeing the downbeating, it's very important that you rule out other issues uh, that may be associated with downbeating nystagmus, like cerebellar impairments or uh, other insidious uh, diseases. So we've talked about workup. Uh, we talked about the Dix Hall Pike and the supine roll test for uh, posterior and lateral canal. Um, and I next wanted to move on to treatment, which again is a very interesting thing for providers because you can potentially provide a lot of benefit very quickly. But before we go to candlelith repositioning uh, maneuvers, Dr. Carlson, I just wanted to ask, what's the role of anti-nausea or vestibular suppressant medications for folks with BPPV? That's a great question. So vestibular suppressive medications such as um, Robinol or Meclizine or Ativan will certainly curb the symptoms, but really the, the gold standard treatment is a candlelith repositioning maneuver. And so there are situations where you might have a person who has a very uh, robust response and gets really nauseous and sick, and you're about to send them for testing or candlelit repositioning, and you might prophylactically give them something like meclizine just to get them through the process. But again, uh, the, the treatment isn't just to prescribe one of these medications and have them go home. The treatment is to get them into candlelit repositioning and moving on down that pathway. Dr. McCaslin, can you tell us about these candlelit repositioning maneuvers? The most common one, of course, is called the Epley Maneuver. In 1992, Epley was really the one that moved from Shuknik's theory of all the otoliths being attached to the cupula to, that, to the idea that we could actually move them uh, to a neutral position where they don't really bother the patient anymore. Um, we've gone now, we do a lot of things that are a little bit different than what Epley did, and so the more conventional terminology that we use is called canalith repositioning procedure. And again, they go from otoliths, and once they're in the canal, we, we give them the name canalith. Uh, but essentially, uh, you'll see it referred to as, as Epley in a lot of the literature. Uh, the purpose of this is really to, to stimulate migration of the otoconi and the endolymph of the semicircular canal back into the utricle. Uh, the patient has moved rapidly into the Dix Hall Pike position that we talked about. Uh, it doesn't have to be real rapid. Uh, used to be that we thought you had to throw the patient all the way back, but because of the viscosity and the lymph, we can, you know, go at a, you know, don't have to throw them back, but you need to go um, uh, with a brisk movement uh, towards the side of the affected ear. Uh, the patient's head is then kept in extension and rotated in the opposite direction, 45 degrees towards the unaffected ear. Now, what's key is when we're treating is time. And so how we typically do it uh, in our clinic is we will bring them back in the first, first position, 
We will wait till the symptoms stop. And then when the patient says, I don't feel I'm dizzy anymore, we'll wait for another minute and a half after that to allow the, the otolist to continue to, uh, to move through the system. Again, like I said, we turn the patient's head uh, 45 degrees towards the unaffected ear. Again, we ask the patient when they no longer feel symptoms, wait for another minute and a half after. We then roll them onto the side, the third position, and this is key when we roll them onto the shoulder, push, pointing their nose towards the floor. Okay, if you can't get the nose directly towards the floor, uh, that can be uh, problematic with regards to success of treatment. Uh, again, symptomatic, wait about a minute and a half, and in keeping the head rotated, we are going to have them tuck their chin down and then seat them and then have them sit, uh, sit up. Now, with the Lempert maneuver, which is the AKA barbecue roll, uh, also known as the log roll, uh, this is the treatment for the horizontal canal. And in this case, what we've done is it, during the supine roll test, we've identified the side of the, that is impaired. And the way we did that is that the side with the higher amplitude nystagmus is the affected side. And so if we had a positive supine roll test, what we would have done, and it was on the right, we'd move the head to the right, we would get a large amplitude horizontal nystagmus, bring them back to center, bring them to the left, we would have a smaller amplitude horizontal nystagmus, geotropic, uh, right beating right, left beating left. And then what we would do is I, we've identified the right side. If it's the right side, what we do in terms of the barbecue roll, the patient starts supine when we're going to treat them, head flex 30 degrees, and what we do is rotate towards the unaffected ear. And typically what we'll do is go to one side, again, symptomatic, minute and a half, roll them again, symptomatic, and a half, and have them go all the way around, uh, each position being held for about 60, you know, 60 seconds to a minute and a half. And Dr. McCaslin, you mentioned the word geotropic. Can you discuss the concept of geotropic and ageotropic nystagmus and how that might apply? Yeah, we primarily use the terms ageotropic and apogeotropic uh, with regards to uh, findings that we get during a supine roll test for lateral canal. Uh, geotropic, of course, refers to the nystagmus beating towards the ground. So if your head is turned to the right, you're going to see right beating nystagmus, fast phase being towards the ground. If you turn to the left, likewise, you're going to see left beating nystagmus with the fast phase towards the ground. That form of nystagmus suggests that the canalis in the lateral canal are in the posterior arm. When you see apogeotropic nystagmus during the supine roll test, that indicates that they're in the anterior arm of the lateral canal and require additional maneuvers in order to uh, successfully treat that. And is there any role for what are known as habituation maneuvers in these patients? There are. So typically 80 to 90% of the time with a cantaloupe repositioning procedure done correctly, uh, we can successfully treat these patients. There are those that will have what is known as cupulothiasis, okay, in cases where uh, the, the otoliths are actually attached to the cupula and uh, the idea of being like Cawthorn or Cooksey exercises or Saman exercises uh, can be, uh, you know, used to, uh, to uh, remediate the, the cupulothiasis. Dr. Carlson, is there any role for surgical management of patients with BPPV? That's a uh, very good question, an interesting question. Most cases of BPV uh, self-resolve or 
are responsive to candle three positioning. And so if you really consider the people with truly refractory disease that have to go on to have additional surgical therapy, you're talking about 1%, 2%, or maybe even less than that of the total population. So it's rare that you need to uh, resort to that. But there are some people that have multiply refractory BPV, BPPV. And uh, there are uh, several surgical procedures that have been used over the years with varying levels of success. So the first primary surgical procedure that was described for BPPV, particularly that involving the posterior semicircular canal, is a singular neurectomy. And that was popularized by Gaycheck uh, several decades ago, and it was largely a transcanal procedure where you would drill in the region of the round window and try to ablate uh, the singular nerve. And the singular nerve, as we can recall on imaging, uh, travels through the singular canal, and it was it's a branch of the inferior vestibular nerve, and it selectively innervates the posterior semicircular canal. That was the first real description for a surgical treatment. Uh, more commonly now, if it is being performed, it's a posterior canal plugging. And this was popularized and I think first described by Dr. Lauren Parnes, uh, where you would fenestrate the posterior semicircular canal and try to leave the endosseum intact. We are not actually seeing perilymph leak. And then you can occlude that with many different uh, types of material, just as you might with superior canal dehiscence. But I think classically it was described by obliterating it with bone pate, uh, but any of those mediums could be used. And if, essentially you're blocking the canal, so you're, not, you're uh, reducing the risk of that, the movement of the otoconia and the deflection of uh, perilymphatic current in that area to reduce your symptoms. Uh, that uh, is met with... Uh, quite good success with people with very refractory disease, but again, it's very uncommon that you actually have to perform the procedure. It's uh, most series would say that your risk of developing a significant sensory neural hearing loss is less than 10 or 15% in the success rate of the procedure at mitigating recurrent BPPV is over 90%. The last surgical procedure that can be described, uh, that has been described, but really is, I would say, I can't even think of a time I've heard of somebody using it for it, um, is a vestibular nerve section. And again, uh, these are procedures that are labyrinth or labyrinthine sparing, so you're not actually um, uh, risking sensory neural hearing loss significantly. But with a, or a vestibular nerve section, you can perform that through a retrosigmoid crani craniotomy or a middle fossa craniotomy. And as you might recall, anatomically, the farther you get away from the, the root exit zone of the eighth nerve, the more those nerves divide. So you can more selectively uh, ablate or uh, divide your inferior and superior vestibular nerves. Again, that is a little bit extreme, and most people would resort to these other uh, surgical methods if a surgical method was even required to begin with. And Dr. McCaslin, moving on to outcomes and expectations, what are the success rates of these cantilith repositioning maneuvers, and how often do you see a recurrence? Yeah, well, it's uh, probably the most successful thing we do in dizziness. About 80 to 90 percent of people uh, have complete resolution. I think it's very important uh, to prepare the patient for the symptoms that may occur after treatment. Uh, sometimes what they will do is complain of lightheadedness. Uh, they'll continue to experience that for a couple, up to a couple weeks. Uh, one of the most common symptoms that, that uh, patients report, well, they feel like they're walking on shag carpeting, okay? And that can last up. I've seen that last up to a week. Uh, I think the longest has been a week. Uh, but then eventually then that resolves, Okay. Uh, then there's a, a recurrence. And so about 30% of patients will have a recurrence. And I think it's up for every clinician to really determine, is this someone that I can teach to do the maneuvers themselves? 
or is it not? And so in elderly patients, I prefer uh, that may, you know, may have risk of injury or a fall. I uh, prefer to do it in the clinic. Uh, if you've got um, uh, a group of patients you know, that, that, that can certainly understand it or work with their spouse uh, to treat it at home because of the reoccurrence, then uh, that certainly is well. I think it, it's a case-by-case basis. And in terms of follow-up, how do you follow up with these patients? And do you give them any instructions for things they should do going home directly after a cantilith repositioning maneuver? Yeah. So for the, to the first question, do I have them follow up? I do. I actually have them ask for them to give me a phone call and rate on a percentage. How much better are they? Uh, 100% resolved, uh, not all the way to not resolved at all. Um, and then in that, we'll, we'll uh, either work through it uh, with them at home or we'll have them come back into the office. Uh, with regards to recommendations following the treatment, and this is interesting because there's a whole body of literature that says uh, the people, when we used to send them home, we used to put them in cervical collars, tell them to sleep in a recliner, you know, all of the, you know, we did all of this. And then as, as, as studies came out, it found that that really didn't, you know, make a significant difference. What I will say to that is that I have them avoid any dramatic up or down movements of the head, bending over, doing yoga, anything like that that would put them in an unnatural position for at least two days. Uh, I've seen it reoccur within two days. Uh, doing some of these procedures and maneuvers like yoga is, is a big one that came out. Uh, but after two days, they're welcome to do anything that, you know, that they feel comfortable with. But uh, yeah, and I have them usually recommend just sleep with a pillow, uh, two pillows for the, for, you know, just for two nights and avoid any of those. Great. Well, I think this has been an awesome discussion of uh, BPPV. Dr. McCaslin and Dr. Carlson, thanks again so much for being here. Before I move on to the summary, um, is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, Dr. Barnes, this is wonderful. I don't have anything to add. Thank you for organizing this. No, thank you. I just think it's great that we organized this, and uh, everybody's going to see some of these patients at some point in their life, and so it's good to be sophisticated and understand what it is and how to treat it. Well, moving on to our summary, BPPV is the most common peripheral vestibular disorder resulting in vertigo, and patients present with vertigo and nystagmus with characteristic movements such as rising out of bed. It's caused by otoconia that are dislodged from the utricle and sit in one of the semicircular canals, free-floating in the endolymph. The vast majority of BPPV is due to otoconia, which become canaliths, in the posterior canal, though the horizontal and anterior canals can be affected. Diagnosis is made using the Dix-Hallpike maneuver for the posterior canal when it's affected and the supine log roll test when the horizontal canal is involved. Treatment can include medication for symptom management, but it's almost exclusively treated by canalith repositioning maneuvers. As a reminder, the Epley maneuver is used to displace otoconia in the posterior canal, while the Lempert maneuver is used to displace otoconia in the horizontal canal. Success rates are close to 80 to 90%, and the disease is otherwise self-limiting for most patients. Recurrence rates of note can be as high as 30%. I'll now move on to the question-asking portion of our time together. As a reminder, I'll ask a question, wait a few seconds, and then give the answer. So the first question is, describe the anatomy of the semicircular canals. There are three semicircular canals that are orthogonally oriented, uh, which means oriented at 90 degrees to each other. There's the posterior canal, 
the horizontal or lateral canal, and the superior semicircular canal. They're filled with endolymph, and at the end of each semicircular canal rests an ampulla. The posterior and superior circular canals come together to form a common cruse. The utricle and the saccule are located in the vestibule, and the horizontal canal is at a 30-degree plane from the ground or the horizon. Next question, what is the most common cause of BPPV? The most common cause of BPPV is idiopathic, and this is a displacement of an otolith which becomes a canalith when it falls into the posterior semicircular canal. Next question, describe the most common diagnostic maneuver for BPPV. So this is the Dix-Hallpike maneuver, and it's used to identify canalis in the posterior semicircular canal. The patient is seated upright with the head turned 45 degrees toward the tested side, and this aligns the posterior semicircular canal with the sagittal plane. The examiner manually supports the patient to quickly recline and become supine with the head hyperextended over the end of the table, and the diagnosis is made with nystagmus and reproduction of symptoms. For our final question, describe the canalith repositioning maneuver or the Epley maneuver. So again, the Epley maneuver or this specific canalith repositioning maneuver is used to displace canaliths from the posterior semicircular canal. The patient is moved into the Dix-Hallpike maneuver as previously described towards the direction of the affected ear. The patient's head is kept in extension and in this position until the symptoms of dizziness or vertigo subside and then the patient is rotated in the opposite direction 45 degrees again waiting for symptoms to subside uh, for over a minute the patient is then rolled into the side lying position toward the unaffected ear continued with that head turned uh, 45 degrees and with the nose pointed towards the floor and as the patient is sat up the uh, they're asked to tuck their chin uh, towards the shoulder uh, as they're slowly brought into the seated position. That wraps up our episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time.